0: Well, good morning, Westridge. It's good to see you here this morning. As Lisa said, we're going to start a new series today based on the parables, and we'll take a look at three parables, one each week over the next couple of weeks. The Bible tells us that about a third of the way through Jesus' ministry, he stopped teaching in this very direct manner with the audiences that showed up, and he started teaching almost exclusively by parables, and he did that because he wanted people to take what he was teaching, wrestle through it for themselves, and figure out the point of what he was trying to teach. To be fair, Jesus' parables often confused even his closest followers. People would listen to these allegories, and they'd walk away scratching their heads. I mean, even the disciples at times would pull Jesus aside after he was done teaching and look at him and essentially go, what was that about? They didn't get it, and so he'd have to break it down and explain it to them so they would understand. If we're honest, we read some of these parables, and they can be a little confusing to us as well. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13. The mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds known in Jesus' day, This parable was intended to help us think about how our faith develops. So here's the parable. It's one of the shortest. Jesus says, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so the birds come and perch in its branches." One of the shortest parables Jesus told, and it teaches us a strong faith develops not because we have some epiphany about God. A strong faith doesn't come because we've discovered a secret that millions and millions of Christians before us somehow missed. A strong faith doesn't come to us because God magically infuses it into us the day we decide to follow Jesus. Instead, a strong faith grows slowly, over time. It is forged by the decisions we face and the decisions we make. So this whole idea of using stories to get a teaching point across wasn't unique to Jesus. Uh, His parables resembled a lot of the stories going around in those days. It made me think of a book of uh, stories that my mom and dad got for us when we were kids called Aesop's Fables. Anybody remember those? It was kind of the, the same principle. Aesop lived about 600 years before Jesus, and he was a, he was a very interesting individual. Uh, Aesop uh, was very, very short, altitudinally challenged. Uh, he lived his, almost his entire life as a slave. And in addition to all of that, he was physically disfigured, horribly disfigured, And in that broken vessel, there was a ton of wisdom about life. He wasn't necessarily the author of all the fables he collected. He was just the first to aggregate about 200 of them into a collection. Each of his stories involved an animal that took on human characteristics. You know, there was a lion being helped by a mouse. There was a tortoise and a hare involved in a foot race. You remember those? And in each of these fables, Aesop was driving home one main point. One value, one principle at a time. And I believe those lessons are deeply embedded in our culture, even if you didn't grow up like I did reading Aesop's Fables. So I'm going to test that theory out with you guys this morning. Every one of his stories had a little tagline. It was kind of like the moral of the story. So I'm going to give you the start of one, and if you know the second half, I want you to say it out loud. Join the crowd. There's no prize or punishment, but just participate, and then you can go back to sleep. Um, So, uh, here's the first one. Slow and steady. See, you know them. This is not that hard. It's not a trick question. Familiarity, breeds. Yeah, that was the one about the fox and the lion. The previous one was about the tortoise and the hare. Um, Appearances are often deceiving deceiving from the wolf in sheep's clothing. What doesn't kill us. Yeah, that's not Aesop's fables. That's Kelly Clarkson. But you got that one too. Each of Aesop's fables taught one central truth. And we kind of lose the plot line in his fables if we try to make everything in the story mean something. It's the same when we dig into the parables of Jesus. Every parable generally had one truth, that Jesus was trying to drive the home. And I've made the mistake in teaching, and I've listened to others do the same, when we try to draw a lesson out of every single detail in a parable. If I did that this morning with the parable of the mustard seed, we'd pick apart every aspect and see what God was trying to teach us, you know, in the seed, in the birds that landed, in the tree that it became, uh, the soil that it was grown in, all of those elements. And when we do that, we say more than Jesus intended. He didn't try to teach the entire message of the gospel in any one parable, any one talk. Every parable gives us one unique insight into faith and it gives us something that we need to understand about our life with Jesus. So our question this morning is, what is the one point Jesus was trying to make? I grew up a little bit confused by this parable, if I'm honest. I mean, we had a large garden every summer. and One of the things my mom grew was mustard greens. So when I think of mustard seed, I think of mustard greens. It's this leafy, lettuce-like looking thing Uh, that my mom uh, loved and I despised, no matter how many times she made me try it. And so I think about that when Jesus talks about a mustard seed. You have this beautiful lettuce-like vegetable, and granted, there is a stalk that grows out of the center of it when it goes to seed, but that stalk isn't strong enough to support a bird, well, at least not a very big bird at all. Where Jesus lived, they grew that kind of mustard, but they also grew a separate kind. And it's still in the Middle East today. The seeds were similar in size at the start, but this mustard seed Jesus was talking about, it grew to look like this. I mean, it was a bush-like shrub that could grow to between 20 and 30 feet in height and would have a canopy of the same width. It had a trunk that was more than a foot in diameter. This is a substantial plant. Mustard was one of the smallest seeds known to man in Jesus' day. And yet, Jesus says it becomes one of the tallest trees in the Middle East. Jesus was using this tiny, vulnerable mustard seed to represent both the humble beginnings and the great potential of our faith. That makes total sense. I think for all of us, our faith began very, very small. There was no fanfare, there was no big miracle when we came to faith. Rather, our faith had this inauspicious beginning. The seeds of faith were planted, one conversation at a time over a cup of coffee. Seeds of faith were planted as we sat staring out the front window of a house, looking at the night sky and, asking God to help us see what he's getting at in our lives. Do you remember the circumstances around when those seeds of faith were planted in your life? I mean, I remember three very influential people in my faith from time I was really, really young. I mean, I went to church for the first time when I was 10 days old uh, and haven't really had an extended period where I wasn't involved in a church somewhere. But in those times, there were three people that stood out My mom and dad planted seeds of faith in me as a kid from those earliest days. We had a pastor in a couple of different churches over the years who was very instrumental in my life. His name was Marion Harris. Um, He was a phenomenal uh, person as well as a great pastor in those churches. He had a huge impact on my faith growing up as well as on my decision to eventually go into the ministry. And then there was the one that stood out as I think about it, which was... uh, Gosh, she was such a sweet lady. Marie Burton was her name. And she was this grandmotherly figure who taught my Sunday school class at the church I was in from like first to third grade. And she could tell stories about Jesus in a way that could keep me from squirming, which not much else could do at that age. She held my attention. She planted seeds of faith in Jesus. And then she just showed love and care to the kids that were in her classes. And she had a profound impact. On my faith, I think we all share a similar narrative. Faith always starts small. But when we're patient and when we're intentional, our faith will grow and gain strength as we follow Jesus. One day at a time, one decision at a time. So uh, in order to help us think about how faith grows, there's probably no better character in the Old Testament, at least he's the one my mind first goes to, than King David. Now, how did his faith develop? Because really, when we think about him, we think about King David. We think about him being the religious and political leader of the nation of Israel. He had this authentic, incredible faith as king. It was a faith that enabled him to trust God in unbelievably difficult circumstances. It was a faith that helped him believe in God's love and forgiveness, even when he committed some really horrible Sins. It's important to remember that David wasn't born with this faith. It wasn't a miraculous gift he was given by God. The seeds of faith were planted in David's heart very early on by his mother and his father. His faith in God grew through challenges in his life as he learned that God could be trusted. He learned that lesson tending his father's sheep out in the wilderness, and he learned to fight off lions and bears not in his own strength, but in his faith in God. He learned his faith from the prophet Samuel, who made him aware of the fact that God had chosen him to be the next king of Israel, and there was an ongoing influence in his life. He learned it facing difficult challenges, like standing in front of the giant Goliath. David had ups and downs in his faith. He had successes, and he had struggles in his relationship with God. And if you want a picture of both, I would suggest that you pick up the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, literally 150 songs, most of which that were written by David. Not only was David an accomplished musician, but like most musicians, whatever he was going through in his life found its way into his music. So there's all the joy when things are going well and all the angst of when he's struggling in his faith. As a young man, God recognized the strength of David's faith, the strength of his character. And so God chose David as the next king of Israel. But instead of being honored and revered as the next king, David became a huge problem for the first king of Israel, who was still on the throne. He became public enemy number one. He was a threat to Saul and Saul chased him along with his troops. Saul and his troops chased David all over the Middle East trying to find him and kill him, and in the process, ensure King Saul's legacy through his son, Jonathan, who Saul felt should be the next king. So in 1 Samuel 30, that's the context we find David in. He was on the run, hiding out from Saul and his assassins. Somehow in this, he'd managed to enlist 600 men to fight with him against King Saul. And so one day, David and his men are out doing battle and do not realize that the Amalekites, another one of their enemies, had snuck in behind them, had gone into their little village and destroyed everything. They raided the village. They burned the structures to the ground. Their wives and children were taken away, nowhere to be found. Everything these men owned and everything they loved was gone. I wonder what we would do faced with a situation like that if everything we loved and everything we owned was gone. I mean, if I'm honest, I'd probably have the same reaction David's men first had. 1 Samuel says, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. You know that feeling? Have you ever had a loss in your life that just buckles your knees and breaks your resolve? Have you had that mourning that comes from a deep place in you that isn't just tears flowing down your face, it's a wailing that comes from deep inside your chest? For these men, as far as they knew, they had lost their wife and their children forever. And as soon as their weeping relented, they immediately started trying to figure out who to blame for this catastrophe. And David, in their minds, was clearly at fault. It was David who had led them all away to fight another enemy and left their families vulnerable. It was David who was responsible for their kidnapping, was responsible for their killing possibly, and was responsible for the loss of every material possession they owned, which wasn't much to begin with. And these men were so angry, they started talking about stoning David. The Bible says they were so bitter in spirit because of their sons and daughters that they wanted to kill David. Now think hard about that situation. Imagine you're David. How would your faith respond? Not only have you lost everything, but the only people around you now want to take your life. How would you deal with that loss? Is your faith strong enough? The Bible records that David did in this moment what he had always done. He withdrew from his men a short distance so they could see he wasn't running away, he was just getting some distance. And he began to pray. And as he prayed, the Bible says, David found strength in the Lord his God. Now, my tendency probably wouldn't have been to first go pray. My tendency might have been to just argue with the guys who are wanting to kill me, try to prove that it wasn't really my fault. And if that didn't work, my tendency would be to run as fast as I could and as long as I could. Because these are not just ordinary soldiers. These are 600 special forces, elite soldiers. And all 600 of them are wanting to and are ready to take David's life. Rather than rely on his own resources, his own wisdom, David inquired of the Lord. God, can you just hear him saying, God, what's going on here? God, how do I deal with my grief and still follow you? God, how do I help my men do the same thing? And as he prayed, the Bible says he gained strength with God's direction he set a plan in front of his men and he said, we're going to go, we're going to find the Amalekites and we're going to take our families back. So he led his men and they found the Amalekites, not too far away. They found them enjoying the spoils of their plunder. David and his men engaged them in battle. As tired as they were, as emotionally exhausted as they were, they engaged them in battle for 24 hours nonstop. And they won. They won. They won the battle, and they they rescued their families. You can look at the entire life of David, and what you'll find is every incident, every decision in David's life was a turning point. It was an opportunity for him in a crisis, or when a decision faced him, will my faith grow stronger or weaker? Am I going to turn towards God or away from God? David's faith had begun ever so slowly. It had grown over time from this inauspicious beginning as a shepherd boy through one decision, one experience at a time. And through all the successes in David's life and his failures, his faith grew to the point where those soldiers around him, the people closest to him, found courage and strength in the shadow of David's faith. David's journey, I think, perfectly illustrates what Jesus is talking about with this parable of the mustard seed. Look, we all want to have a faith that's strong and mature like the mustard tree. We want to have a faith like David's in a horrible challenge. But this morning, we're honest. For each one of us, our faith is somewhere between that tiny little mustard seed and that 30-foot-tall tree. I think it's a hard lesson for us to think about faith growing slowly. And in this age of instant gratification, it's tough to remember that Jesus encourages a patient faith. And I think that's the point of this parable. Look, we live in an age of instant gratification. We just do. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you ordered something, it took weeks to get to your house. And then God created Amazon, right? Over the last couple of years, they've gone from, you know, a two-day delivery to a four-hour delivery window on the same day you order. I mean, that's as close to heaven as I think I'll get. Saturday, I had a book that I was expecting, and it did not come. It was one of those four-hour orders. It was supposed to come, and I got this message from Amazon saying, hey, it's going to be there Monday. I was frustrated. Really? Monday? I mean, you promised Saturday. And then I remembered today's talk a patient faith. Look, we get impatient at lots of things. We get impatient when the Wi Fi slows down and our files don't load the speed we're used to. We get impatient when a text message isn't responded to immediately, especially when you see those little dots just moving so you know they're looking at your message but they're not responding. We get impatient. I do that, and I doubt I'm the only one. It seems like we are a hurried and impatient people, and that spills over into our faith. We're disappointed when our faith doesn't grow at light speed. And eventually in our growth at some point we stop and we realize spiritual growth cannot be hurried. A Mustard tree doesn't grow overnight. Neither does a resilient faith. Our faith grows day by day as we choose to dig into God's Word and understand His heart for us. Our faith grows day by day when God answers our prayers even though it seems like the answer was never going to come. Our faith grows day by day when we choose to trust God and wait. Our faith grows when we choose to stop, to slow down, and not only talk to God, but listen to God in our prayers. Our faith grows slowly in the ordinary stuff of life as we choose to follow God, where every step has the potential to strengthen or weaken our faith. But if we're persistent, if we're intentional, I believe that one day every one of us will wake up and be surprised to discover that our faith is mature. It's fully developed. And to discover that the faith that God has grown over time in us is a faith that our friends, our family, can find strength and encouragement in as they walk in the shadow of our faith.